I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Welcome again to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. Sean and I are speaking to Wendy Gonzalez, CEO of Sama, a data labeling vendor. Wendy has been at Sama for eight years. Before then, she served as vice president of product and architecture at Cycle 30. She has also worked for several consultant organizations and currently serves as a board member for the Layla Jaina Foundation. Welcome, Wendy, to today's podcast. Thank you so much, Esther. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're a CEO for a data labeling vendor. Um, can you just give us a brief overview of uh, what that entails in that job and how Sama works with its customers? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. So data is at the heart of AI, right? So uh, effectively, what artificial intelligence does is it, of course, um, you know, uh, attempts to understand large volumes of data and then, you know, predict outcomes, right? So all um, AI is based off of, of data. And that's really where we sit. Um, so we uh, are a data labeling company. We help transform, uh, process, and structure unstructured data. So specifically where we primarily focus is computer vision. And that is basically uh, being able to label and structure images, videos, 3D, and LiDAR data. Uh, for use in applications like self-driving cars, uh, surgical robots, uh, crop disease detection, things of that nature. Sama is not only woman-led, but was also founded by women. How does that affect the way the company carries itself in a male-dominated industry? How does that affect the handling of data, if at all? Yeah, that's a great a great question. Well, um, I've always been a firm believer in diversity. We can't help but bring ourselves to uh, to, to work. Our experiences, uh, you know, as a as a child of immigrants, as as a mom, as a sister, as many other things um, that we do. So, I think that diversity is incredibly important. I've never been a fan of having uh, a bunch of people agree with me when I get to, to a meeting or to business. So, I think bringing um, diverse views are incredibly important, and particularly in the space of AI. Artificial intelligence is a technology that pervades like all of our everyday, right? From your phones to the way that we communicate to what's out on the internet. And so it's incredibly important that we have diverse perspectives um, brought into this because it's, it's, a, it's a global uh, technology, transcends uh, you know, location and gender. So having that representation, I think, is really important. And we've made a, um, a specific focus on, on diversity. So uh, we actually have over 50% women in our company, and that is um, our labeling teams, um, all the way actually up through management. Uh, so I think that diversity is really important and it becomes in particularly important in building AI because if we had the same sort of group of people building a technology that's meant for global use, uh, I think that'd be challenging. So the diversity is helpful. Okay. So, you know, you and Esther spoke a couple of years ago and we did, she did a story on you about your being mission driven. I think you're a B corporation too, and you hire internationally in underrepresented countries, underrepresented in the tech business like uh, Kenya. So you're, you're a B Corp, but you've also faced some criticisms of uh, labor practices that I think was your contractor. Um, but how do, you, how do you marry those two, the mission-driven part and that concern, and then, you know, good 
humane labor practices. And um, everybody wants to know, like the $2 an hour or $3 an hour to the Kenyan workers was um, above the prevailing wage. Yes. But was it a, why not go much higher than the prevailing wage? Go two or $3 higher to make yourself really stand out as mission driven. Yeah, well, let me maybe start with what the purpose of our social mission is, um, and then and then I can you know address all those components. So um, we're incredibly proud of our track record. So we do work in um, Kenya and Uganda. We have a purposeful hiring model to where the qualifications to come and get full time employment with comprehensive benefits um, is not based off of having you know a a degree or having previous work experience. Right. So that's that's usually how people get hired is you get hired based off of I've got a college degree or I'm working in this industry. So our goal is to provide the digital upskilling and a first time work experience because our hypothesis and what we've what we've seen and proven is that once you're able to get a job, you're able to then continue to get jobs. Um, and that first employment is really critical, especially if you don't have a degree or you don't have the network. It's the biggest barrier to employment. So that is really our purposeful hiring model. Um, and beyond the the hiring on the basis of impact, we hire into living wages. So living wages are not just minimum wages, but we used a, a world-renowned um, methodology called the Anker methodology, where the assessment is, is what does it take to not only have you know a meaningful wage, but to have safe housing, to have savings, um, you know, and it's all based off of what the the local wage is. So we've adhered to that methodology. We've done numerous audits with um, external parties, everything from you know MIT and Poverty Action Labs all the way through um, you know our B Corp certification. So we've got a strong track record, and our you know have basically put our 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 hiring and our, our wage practices out for, for the, the world to see, because it's something that is uh, not an easy thing to do, to, to do that level of purposeful hiring into a full-time employment role. So in terms of the, you know, why the wages? Well, living wages um, are exactly what I just shared. So to give you a sense of it, in California, right, I think the, the minimum wage in the, the Bay Area is going to be um, somewhere around $18 an hour. Right, um, and the that might be you know nine dollars somewhere else um, in in Kenya, where most of our workforce is the minimum wage is fifteen thousand shillings, and we pay at a minimum almost twenty nine thousand shillings, okay? and that is for an entry level position with full time benefits. So they're meaningful wages, they're meaningful jobs that are equivalent of what a teacher might make, what a firefighter might make, um, and and so uh, yes, as a first time uh, job, it's meaningful and. It, you know, it speaks to, uh, you know, the fact that we have, um, you know, significant, uh, not just sort of waiting lists, but but uh, that the jobs not only are about getting into that employment, but getting experience so that people can either go back to college, so we have scholarship programs, or move on to higher paying work. Our intention is not to, you know, bring in people as computer scientists, right? It's to provide that first time um, entry level job. So as a follow up to the previous question, I understand the idea of living wages and giving them the correct wage for their job. Um, especially since it is a first job. And for our listeners, here's a bit of background. Sama has been accused of making some of the workers in Kenya through its contract with OpenAI read sexually and label sexually disturbing text. It's also accused of not paying them fair wages. I believe that was about $2 per hour. So you say livable wage, you say that's livable wage. Isn't the minimum wage in Kenya about $2? And even looking at it from a perspective of a New Yorker where the minimum wage is $15, I'm not sure that's helpful in this economy. Granted, that was two years ago. That's that's a minimum wage. It's not living wage. 
is two dollars per hour is that the minimum wage for that kind of work and so no what? the minimum wage is actually fifteen thousand shillings that equivalent is um i'd have to do the do the math on that but uh it's uh much less than uh, two dollars i'm certainly happy to share data with, with you esther but it's all relative um income so when we're talking about, again, hiring, um, if you're familiar with this industry, a lot of work is happening in the crowd and people get paid by the task sense. No benefits, no guarantees, whatever work is out there. Much of it is crowd driven. So the, the, the prices are sort of surge priced, right? So the more volume, the lower the, you know, the lower the price. This is full-time living wage paid work, right? Employment with benefits. So medical, dental, vision, 21, you know, 21 days of vacation, sick leave, full-time um, secure employment for people who've never worked before and have, have an opportunity to basically do uh, create the skills, the digital skills necessary to um, participate in the digital economy. Beyond that, when I'm talking about living wages is that is all in a local context. So there's a living wage in Uganda. There's a living wage in, in India. And the living wage in India is going to be substantially different. It's actually going to be a lot less um, than that that number of uh, of shillings I mentioned. The in terms of the local context, I mean, this is where I would encourage you to go and take a look at livingwage.org or look at the Kenyan at the Kenyan uh, minimum wage. Is that that it is fifteen thousand, and you're coming into an entry level job that is nearly twice that amount of money. That that's why I shared with you the comparable positions, teachers, right. Bank tellers, um, you know, this is what these uh, entry level, um, this entry level position is is comparable to. That explanation sound sounds fair enough, but when you add in the stuff about some of the uh, content that the annotators had to view, you know, that I can almost see that as like hazardous labor where you get a premium because you have to do this kind of uh, noxious work, you know, and some of some of the labeling with the offensive stuff. Uh, violence, sexual violence, others, other really bad stuff. So did you pay a premium for that kind of work? Yes, there's a premium for that kind of work, but I want to clar- clarify, and I think this is important, Sean, and as, is that um, that uh, initial work um, that was uh, ultimately a pilot project for, for OpenAI, it went beyond the boundaries of work that we were comfortable doing, so we canceled that project. It was only in existence for uh, a handful of, uh, of months. Uh, we can't, you know, we shared our, our concerns, and we don't do content moderation work. So we, we've fully exited that business. Beyond that, um, it was never part of a core of what we were doing. So uh, less, than, um, less than 4% of our work. <laughs> so the 96% um, is in uh, annotation with our specific uh, hiring practices. That work was not work that followed the, the norm. There were resiliency tests, uh, you know, wellness counselors. It was a completely different line of work that we've, we've uh, fully exited. And um, ultimately, it's not our focus area. It never has been. It was a really two engagements um, that occurred. We we exited that, um, and to make sure that we were, you know, basically not going to get into a, a situation like that again. Meaning where where opportunities um, coming in um, may not fall in line with the areas we want to focus in, we created a service line boundary policy, basically that says this is the con- very directly. This is the work we will do. This is the work we will not do. That includes sensitive or harmful content moderation. That includes not working, you know, for weapons, you know, weapon manufacturing and big tobacco and a number of other areas that, you know, we feel um, is not our core focus or in alignment with our mission. So we're talking about data labeling and data annotation, right? 
Obviously, your company may not do this anymore, but there are other companies who do require workers to go and annotate in this type of way, in the way that annotators may feel uncomfortable. So is it fair or is there a fair way to label AI models like large language models or like language models while they're abiding by the rules of ethics? Also, why hire people outside the country to do stuff or people outside the European world to do things like this? I mean, I know you guys are driv mission driven and I think and think of like, okay, we're trying to get those underrepresented communities their first job, which makes perfect sense. Why hire them to do these dirty work or do this work that they may or may not want to do? Yeah, well, I mean, there's really a, a couple, couple of couple of things is is our social mission is predicated on being able to get access to the digital economy. So this is the the, the largest set of sort of jobs and investment, right? The I'm sure you've seen in, in, in red, I'm sure you're, you're probably even in better research than me in terms of understanding the GDP and the value that is going to be created from AI. Do we think only one group of people should benefit from that? Is, is, that, is that the belief that there shouldn't be participation in the, in the digital economy? This is where all the jobs are going to be created, right? A huge portion of jobs are going to be created. And one of the reasons we focused on impact sourcing is because if all the jobs were available locally, if there was a huge amount of jobs available, well, then that would be fine, right? Great. People would, would be able to work, work in a work in economy. But part of the challenge is, and if you take a look at the OECD data, 86% of employment in sub-Saharan Africa is from the informal economy. So the informal economy means everything from, you know, selling secondhand clothes to, you know, doing construction. It's not, there aren't benefits. You have to show up to work. If you're sick, you don't earn money. Um, and uh, those the the ability to create jobs and bring in jobs from other parts of the world is is part of the global economy. I'm sure, you, you can say, well, you know, why anybody participate in the digital economy? Well, it's for job creation. The whole reason why um, we launched this uh, this approach was was not around sort of giving you know giving aid. It was about giving work. It's about creating financial independence in an ecosystem. So our you know, ninety-seven percent of our workforce exists within within Kenya. Um, we've created tens, well over ten thousand jobs. Um, you know, tens of millions of dollars of of uh, salaries and income and and benefits that have affected you know family members and communities. Creating an ecosystem where there are digital skills, job creation. That's that's significant. Um, if if there were a, you know plentiful jobs, meaning you know. You, you sort of take it or leave it, then then that would be amazing. Like that would be absolutely amazing. But that's not the situation. And being able to have uh, people from around the world globally, in particular the ones that have the greatest barriers to employment, have access to the digital economy is important. I mean, unless the the thought is that um, you know the those jobs should be preserved for you know a certain group, I I don't think so. I think that the the world needs to participate, and the you know uh, people um, across the world need to be able to access jobs in the digital economy. I definitely agree that people around the world need to be active in the digital economy. I think it's definitely right to say, okay, we have to have everyone participate. My idea is the idea of data labeling. Um, and even I have discussed this with you before about like, why do we need a human in the loop? Um, and what we are talking about are people with strong ethical convictions are definitely different from people in America. So they have different ethical convictions so I guess my question is, what are the ethical implications? How do we have data labeling where we say, 
where we say, okay, we're talking about we don't want Americans to be subject to these bad things in things like ChatGPT, but it's okay to ask others who are labeling them to be subject to those things. Is that correct? How can we have an ethical way of doing data labeling? Yeah, so so I think a, a couple of things. Like, so first off, if it can be done all automated, it would have been done. I I think that every uh, you know company in the world, uh, especially these larger companies that are are building these models, if it could be if it could be done in an automated fa- fashion, then we I mean we they do it right. We we'd basically be in the sing we'd basically be in the singularity, right? So in other words, if all data was already structured and could be interpreted by ML by machine learning. Then you know we we would be in a, a different world, right? Everything would be automated. You know, we'd we'd literally be in uh, you know in Skynet territory if you've ever seen the the Terminator. The the nature of this is that uh, the automation isn't there yet. Um, so models require training, right? And you they get a certain a certain um, data set. You know, it's almost impossible. Like if you think about it, especially as the world changes, to know every combination of every sort of possible outcome, right? And so. These data scientists, they build their models based off a set of parameters. They try to train their model to be as intelligent as possible. And then they they need training data, um, which is which is what we do, uh, to be able to validate that the model works as intended. So let me use a different example, not an, an LLM, but let's just take an example of a self-driving car. Okay, a self-driving car, to be able to function properly, uh, needs to be able to have lots of roadway data. It could be roadway data, you know, here in the U.S. It could be roadway data in the U.K. where people are driving on the, you know, on the on the other side of the street. It could uh, be roadway data that occurs in, you know, like a twelve lane roundabout in China. Right? These are all very different situations. So the approach is, of course, gather as much data as possible. Well, then what ends up happening when it snows? All of a sudden, everything is covered with snow hail, rain, dusk, dawn, there are so many different elements. And so what happens is you need to build as much training data as possible to create a model that's effective. But there may be a scenario that the model hasn't seen before. One, you need a human in the loop to validate, okay, the model's detecting things as expected. It detects pedestrians and people of all shapes, sizes, and colors. It recognizes all sorts of vehicles. It recognizes scooters, bicycles, etc. And so that's really where the goal of you know having the right data labeling solution becomes really key because you need complete and effective data and you need a human in the loop to then validate that the AI or the models interpreting that data as expected. Because if it isn't, then you need to be able to, to flag that and then reflect and retrain that model. It's a very long way of saying, um, Esther, that um, you know humans in the loop and validation of comprehensive and effective data sets, by definition, require validation. They're working as expected. So human loop is necessary. Um, it's not possible at this point in time to auto-label everything. In fact, we have synthetic data partners where synthetic data is something that, you know, is is, is definitely, I think, an important emerging part of, um, of AI because synthetic data helps round, round out the data that's difficult to collect. But we're even working with synthetic data partners to validate that their synthetic data is created as expected. So we're using a human in the loop to validate these synthetic data because uh, if it's auto-generated, um, you, you need to ensure that it's actually working as expected. Okay, that's that's interesting. So um, so what, what what is Sam's approach to bias just in AI algorithms and data labeling? So how do you work to ensure that bias is removed from the training data? 
So it all starts with um, really understanding what sits in your data set. So um, as I mentioned before, right, you know, the, the data scientists, the people who are building these models are going to collect as, as much data as possible. Maybe they'll use an open source data set. Maybe they'll, they'll leverage data from, you know, their sensors uh, or, or software. And, uh, you know, in, in the example, I'll just carry forward the um, self-driving car example. So if you collect a data set, right, you're training your model on it, but you, you find that your model is not, um, it's doing great on lane detection, but it's not doing very well on, say, road signs. Um, so then uh, to ensure that, we, we have a, a software called uh, Somacuri, um, which allows us to understand what's sitting in your data. We could say, great, by the way, you're going to need more road signs. Uh, in particular, you're going to need some stop signs and yield signs if you want that to be able to be effectively detected. So the, the goal is to try to not only understand, am I labeling the data that I uh, is in my data set, am I labeling that accurately and correctly? But equally importantly is what data are you missing? Um, do you have edge cases? Do you need to round out your data source to ensure that it is complete so you can reduce uh, bias and you can ensure that the model is performing as effectively as possible? Um, last year in 2023, Sama launched a generative AI product. In this age of generative AI, how has Sama shifted its strategy? How do you think Sama will continue to evolve? And how do you think the data labeling market will evolve as a whole? Yeah, so generative AI, I know it feels like uh, like overnight that became just uh, just uh, huge. Well, it's it's been in the workings for a while. So this notion of of uh, large language models and and foundation models has been been around a bit. Uh, but obviously, the the world changed a bit when a few of these large models came into production. Generative AI is uh, you know we see this as as um, something that is going to continue to really accelerate. Um, the adoption of artificial intelligence, uh, and it's it's going to um, really reduce the barriers towards developing AI. These foundation models, um, over time, while we've seen this kind of the biggest, most famous ones, right? So like Google Baird, right? You know, ChatGPT, etc. Mendes um, got a, a Meta Llama uh, as a, as an example. Um, they are large foundation models um, that can be leveraged for many different uses, but they're general. Um, so what we're finding is that companies that want to build AI off of generative models still need to tune those models built off of Gen AI with their own data sets for, for their own app, you know, th- for the specific purposes of their application. So we're seeing that um, certainly as a, as a trend is that uh, anything built off of Gen AI still needs to be validated, trained, and tuned with application-specific data. The second thing that um, we're, we're certainly seeing is that models over time are going to get more and more specialized because those large models are for general use. You might end up with a, I don't know, financial foundation model that helps you interpret, uh, you know, public financial statements because it's going to require a lot more specific data and specific knowledge of that space. So we we think they're going to get more and more specialized over time. Uh, But going back to what I said a little bit earlier, the key thing is, is that Generative AI not only allows models to predict outcomes, but it actually then generates next steps. And so it becomes even more important once those models are put into the wild that um, they are, are validated by humans in the loop to ensure that they are still working as planned. Because they collect more and more data, they make more decisions. Is it still the same model? You know, is it still performing as you expected? So I wanted to ask a follow-up question in terms of data infringement. What are your thoughts, especially in the age of generative AI, there's been lots of copyright lawsuits um, in terms of generative AI. As a data labeling company, do you come across infringement? How do you handle it? 
you're hitting the nail on the head, Esther. I think there's um, a huge importance to data provenance, right? So it's it's kind of like if you you built uh, something that was built on something else, where did that data originally come from? You know, do you do you know where it came from? Was it was it licensed, right? Is it is it sort of cop- copyrighted or trademarked? And are you you know ensuring that you're you're um, not only getting it from a reputable source, meaning whatever source collected it, collected it with you know the full knowledge of of the people who are participating in it. And I think that is is going to be really critical, and it's it's very important because uh, you know first of all we we need to consent when our data is being being used, right? The second is is that you need to know that if you contribute to that model, so many people sign up for for some of these models, and of course there's a there's fine print, right, that says anything that you input is now part of our model, right? So now um, we're seeing, of course, many of these companies they have really clear licensing agreements. And you can you can license certain aspects of the foundation model so that you, so that your data, if you use the model, is not being included in the foundation model, right? So so you can pay for sort of a licensed version of that. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think the key point is that uh, we need to have that level of transparency. Um, the EU put out uh, a, a landmark uh, policy back this last summer, and it was really focused on a few things. One of it is is data provenance, right? Where did the data come from? Is there a clear, you know, sort of access consent? And you know, do we know where that data came from? Um, and and uh, you know, ensuring that that it's being used in in the proper way. Um, so that's really important for for both data privacy t- privacy reasons, um, the and, and IP reasons. Uh, the second component of it is is about transparency and how that AI was built, right? So, generative AI it's actually not just again interpreting, but it's it's creating now. So, how do you make sure that that's explainable and that the 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 business rules, if you will, that the AI was built on are transparent? And that's going to become um, really important over time because think about it this way, right? Even a hair dryer has a warning. Right. It says, like, if you plug this in your water, you might electrify yourself. Well, just saying this was created by Gen AI isn't going to be good enough. Right. Think about sensitive areas like lending right? um, or, you know, surveillance or policing. Um, that's why it's really important to identify these areas where there could be, I'm sure, unintentional, but, you know, bias or other challenges created where it needs to be extremely transparent in how the models are actually working. You need that much more than it was created by Gen AI, you need you need that sort of visibility. So that transparency in how the AI is being built is something that's really important. And to you know our earlier conversation um, as well as sir, it's how it's being built is important as well. We are strong advocates of uh, both uh, regulation and policy. You you need to have that for these globally impactful um, applications. And uh, it's not just you know where the data came from, uh, how it was built. Um, so, you know, what are the business rules associated with it? And did you do so in an ethical manner, meaning paying living wages with transparency? So we're, we're advocates of that, um, 100%. So on regulation, I hear you saying you do support regulation, the EU, but the U.S. is far behind in that in that area. Mm-hmm. We have the New York City um, bias in hiring, AI bias in hiring law, or AI used in hiring. Um, we have, you know, the California data uh Protection Act. So who's going to do the stuff you just talked about here in the U.S.? Is it Congress and nationwide, or are we going to still rely on the FTC and the various uh, regulatory agencies? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so the the Biden administration did put put out recent uh, recent. I mean, they're not quite policies, but they're they're basically practices for um, for uh, you know transparent and ethical AI, and asking some industry leaders to step up to that. So I think that's a very good um, first step um, in that direction. There are some really uh, pretty amazing organizations with people um, who, quite frankly, are much, much smarter than me working on this. So uh, it's like the Global Partnership for AI. The OECD is working on uh, on, on some of these these issues. Uh, but I, I think the, the key thing is, and I, mean, I think it'd be amazing if we had a global policy, but like we can't even agree on climate change as a as a as a globe, which is, which is still like beyond me, but that's that even that's hard. So, you know, AI is, is, uh, to, to think we're going to make that big leap would be pretty, pretty tough. Um, but there are great partnerships like the global partnership for AI. And, um, beyond that, I, I think the key thing about this is, is that when has self-regulation ever worked in an industry? It really hasn't. You, 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 you need to have that, that check and balance and, this will be the most per- pervasive uh, technology if we don't have that. Um, I know I simply put it as like a warning label, but if we don't have that level of transparency for how your lending is approved or how your you know how how how, how your community is safeguarded, and and there's so many other you know applications um, you know beyond that, uh, well beyond the kind of the high priority or sensitive ones that um, governments have already begun to identify. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely important. Um, and I think it is going to be pervasive. And it's, it's heartening to see some some changes, or I should say some action in place. Uh, the EU, I think, did a, a nice job of not only outlining kind of, and they sort of did so with GDPR as well, sort of paving, paving some of the way, but outlining, I think, um, some pretty clear steps. Uh, but what I thought was pretty unique about that is, is they have also sort of used it um, as a way to say that AI that's built here in Europe is like transparent and trusted. It's kind of like the the fair trade certified or like the organic, you know, the the organic version of AI. You've got this sort of certification that you know that the quality of the AI that's being built there has gone through all these different steps. And we actually see it even with, you know, the clients that we work with in Europe. They're not only looking at how do we ensure, um, you know, our data is kept uh, kept private, but what are the other um, you know, sort of ESG standards that are are, are in place for, for partners like us. And we're seeing that happen um, you know, with our clients in the U.S. as well. So there's a long way to go, but there's a fair trade analogy is a, good, is a good one. So we're talking about AI regulation. And in 2023, there has been a, a push for an AI pause. Do you think we need to slow down the technology? Uh, it's a really good question. And, you know, as sort of like the, the, the horse is out of the barn, right? These models are out there in the, in, you know, in the wild. So I, I think it's more of a recognition that we need to, I don't, I don't know that they're slowing technology, if that is going to be something that is possible. And I, I know that from a, from a regulation standpoint, I think that is one of the big questions is, is how do you ensure things like, you know, regulation and, and that these big, you know, like really pervasive technologies have have checks and balances for, for all the right reasons, right? To ensure that they're working effectively, fairly. Uh, but then there's also a question of if you if you take that super super strictly, what will happen is that um, innovation could be stifled, and it favors really large companies, right? Because they're the only ones who can you know ha- have the sort of staff to be able to comply with 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 everything. So I think there's going to be a real balance in terms of the the sliding kind of scale of how do you find that balance of si- significance, you know, in, in regulation ver- versus stifling innovation. Um, so I think there's some good work that's happening there. Uh, but, but to answer your, you know, your kind of question is, is, should there be a pause? It's not possible to pause. People, you know, engineers aren't 
stopping development. You know, there's open source out there. Anybody can go and build. It's going to be a matter of putting the appropriate attention. And I, I think, um, you know, uh, governments and and these these um, sort of industry bodies that are are doing, I think, really good work to try to be as informed as possible. That's where we're we're trying to contribute. So we have um, team members who are part of the Global Partnership for AI. We, you know, c- contribute to. Uh, a, a policy and and where where people ask, we're we're happy to to provide an opinion to see what we can do to um, push forward what we think is an important agenda. So finally, Wendy, thank you for being here. Where do you see Sama going from here? Uh, that's a great question. So AI is going to be pervasive in so many different things. We are a big proponent of understanding how what is sitting in, in in your data right data is what makes ai effective so our goal is to ensure that we provide the most you know complete comprehensive data sets that that uh, we can really help our clients you know understand how to create um, you know effective ai and that you know very importantly that the human in the loop is critical to this there's more and more automation and the and the foundation models get smarter and smarter you need a human to validate that those models are working as expected. So the human loop is, is, is critical to the deployment of AI to validate that it's working as planned to help curate and understand what the what the models are missing. We are um, excited to be part of this, this wave to hopefully help make some more um, you know, effective AI and um, you know, to, to do so while transforming lives. Well, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, you're uh, a good representative of your, your company. And um, for our listeners, you can catch up with Wendy on LinkedIn. Uh, as there's been a couple of stories about SAMA, we'll be tracking you in the future. And please check those out on Tech Target News. Appreciate uh, you coming out with us. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Sean and Esther. Great questions, great dialogue. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.